most companies don't treat their carbon as a liability. They're not on risk. And the 25% are due are, are made to by governments. Climate change is projected to cost the global economy between five and $10 trillion per year. If we're not using carbon pricing, we're basically got this massive off balance sheet risk getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And we don't measure it in, until, until after the fact. A carbon price internalizes the negative externality of pollution. Let me know when you're in your own time. Hi, I'm Murray. I'm Kim. And this is the Nature Based Solutions Podcast. How are you doing, Kim? Um, very well, thank you. We've got a great guest on today. We do. Very fortunate to have his time. He's an extremely busy man. And so, great pleasure to have Gordon Bennett from ICE on the show today. Um, I've known Gordon for some time, actually. Him and uh, a, a colleague, Nigel Grinier. And they've been great supporters of what we've been doing at Space Intelligence. And I, I believe the original connection was when Ed my co-founder in the business and chief scientist wrote a, uh, a sterling, if not the definitive, riposte to a lot of criticism of the implementation of nature-based solutions and the development of carbon credits. And so we spent a bit of time with Gordon and Nigel, and they're really doing some fantastic work in, in ICE, an organisation. I'd be curious to know if you'd heard of them, but the positioning is they, they own the New York Stock Exchange. That's a that's a great way to. Wouldn't to you position. love to be able to introduce yourself like yes, that? Yes, exactly. It's it's a great level of like ice. And when you say you own the New York Stock Exchange, it probably rightly puts you in your place. So, yeah. Hence, Gordon being an extremely busy person, but mm. also I think a very eloquent and strong proponent of the need to compensate and abate for emissions in going into the atmosphere. So. He thinks about things very much from a scientific perspective, albeit he's a, um, a financier. He's an accountant. An accountant. He understands the numbers. And he understands the numbers. So thinking about things in the way that we need as a global society to set up the infrastructure and the incentives to drive capital into the solutions for, for climate change. I just came from, from Riyadh and heard on the, on the first session at this future investment initiative the absolute level that all of us should take away that climate change is going to cost the global economy between five and ten trillion dollars a year a year and so we're facing a future of an increasingly unlivable world there's uncertainties associated with all of this you know these, these are, are modeled projections hence a very significant range there but broadly we're not on track to meet this target which was set in 2015 in paris to try and stay on a warming pathway to one and a half degrees centigrade. So we're not tracking to meet that at the moment. To be able to stay on track, we would need to fully reduce deforestation, fully embrace nature-based solutions, and that would enable one third of all of the emissions reductions that we need to meet that target. And so that means you have to have the frameworks you need to have the incentives to be able to get people to buy into nature-based solutions in addition to mitigating and abating uh, emissions across their whole supply chain wow so that's why it's so important to have gordon on the show they're really building this infrastructure and setting these in these incentives so you've terrified me and given me optimism in the same sentence there so that's good well the big 
picture is pretty alarming. I hope, let, let's actually, let's say this, I hope that all these models are wrong. I, <laughs> I think it, we all do, yes. Yeah, exactly. You, you've got to hope that all of these uh, models are wrong. You hope the projected impacts of these models are wrong as well, about creating an inhospitable planet for for humans to live on and much of life as, as we know it. I don't really fancy li living through that. And of course, no. framing it in economic terms, yeah or financial terms, uh, putting a dollar figure on it, also is quite creates some quite big shocking figures. But it is right? a language that people understand. But it is a, it's a language that people understand. So when we think about the investment th through carbon markets and there only being a billion dollars transacted a year at the moment in nature-based solutions um, derived carbon credits, it seems like a paltry number really. And, Compared and indeed, to trillions, geez, yeah. Well, it's, it's just over 1% of the total amount that we would need to invest if we wanted to get the 30% of reductions emissions for, for 2030. So wow. we need a, a 70x increase in amount of money being invested in wow. in, in this market to, to reach our targets. So there's a lot of work to do. Mm. As a consequence, somebody in, in Gordon's position is exactly the right person to speak to, to ask, how do we go ahead and, and do that? Gordon Bennett, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining us. You're welcome. Great to be here. Hi there, Gordon. How are you doing? I'm all right. Good to see you again. Yeah, it's great to see you. Well, I thought the brilliant purpose of this is uh, bringing in one of the great minds in the market uh, relating to the trading of, of carbon. When we set the scene first, which is that in order to be able to meet the target set in Paris in, in 2015, so uh, limiting global warming to one and a half degrees centigrade, we've got, this, got to have this huge reduction in emissions, 30% of all those emissions reductions that we need to stay on track for 2030 have to come from, from nature. That's really the, the big picture. And yet, only about 3% of all funding um, in this space goes into nature-based solutions. So there's a voluntary carbon market and some fraction of that goes into about a billion dollars a year, right, Gordon, goes into nature-based solutions. But it's just not enough. So I'd love to hear your perspective on those um, top-line numbers. Sure. I agree 100% on, on your introduction. Clearly nature's important. I recently got to host my own podcast for the first time a few weeks ago in New York for Climate Week, and my guest was Michael Greenstone, who's the distinguished professor of economics at the University of Chicago. So in terms of a bastion of free markets, it, it doesn't come much better. But his quote was, currently the atmosphere is free. It doesn't take an advanced degree in economics to figure out that people that people who get things for free, they use an awful lot of. If the problem is the atmosphere is free, then we need the solution is is paying for it. Now, not only is the atmosphere free, the other thing that's free is ecosystem services. Natural capital is is essentially free today. You know, there's this discussion around direct air capture, and mostly when people talk about direct air capture, they're referring to technology, uh, so sucking CO2 out of the atmosphere with a machine, but actually the technology that works today at scale that does that job is is nature and so i call it ndac nature direct air capture versus tdac uh, technology direct air capture i think i'm just gonna make a note of that and and, and steal it <laughs> <laughs> but 
and the thing I say to my son is, uh, nature does 20 billion tons of that for free, right? So what would happen if you asked an investor or a developer of TDAC to give away their first 20 billion tons of product for free? They wouldn't do it. So why do we expect nature to do it for free? And and I'd say the other thing in terms of the market with respect to nature is that uh, they're probably more cost effective to deliver. And if a market works effectively, you deliver the most cost effective tons. I'm optimistic on the basis that the tools are all there. The, the challenge is getting people to utilize them. So that, 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 that for me is the challenge. I also think the challenge is that, do we agree that the atmosphere is free is actually the problem? That seems pretty simple to me, but I, I sit in a lot of working groups, panels and, and conferences. There's not an awful lot of reference to the atmosphere in these sessions. And so I, I t when I'm doing this, I try and bring it back to the atmosphere. I mean, yesterday I, uh, on a panel, I said, what would the atmosphere say if it could speak? <laughs> and what would it say, Gordon? <laughs> I only want removals. <laughs> or would it say, just preserve me? Yeah. Luke, Luke pe people, I'm, I'm like running out. Yeah. Uh, just preserve me. Uh, because if, if I run out, then, you know, bad things happen. So stop arguing, stop talking. Let, let's, you know, let's do some action. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is one of the great false dichotomies, I think, that there is in this space. And uh, I'm sure you saw it in, in Climate Week. There was a debate about avoided emissions or removals. And of course, it's both. Yeah, I agree. It's, I mean, you have to do everything, right? And the the one thing that we can't do is predict the future. So it's a little bit odd to rule anything out. If we avoided emitting, we wouldn't be utilizing the carbon budget. So how can avoiding be bad? It's like, that's bordering on crazy, right? The cleanest megawatt hour is the one that you don't use. And that's avoiding. But I agree with your point. It, it's it's and it's and and it's, it should be and and. But why do you think people have got a, a problem with that? I don't know. I I think the challenge is that net zero is such a complex subject, and it, it's really how the world works, right? And who can be an expert in how the world works? You 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 can't. Anyone who says they're an expert in net zero is suffering from a high degree of hubris or they're bordering on lying because you know you got to be a scientist not just one type of scientist either right a physicist climate scientist economist a, a policy person a financial markets person an environmentalist no one has that skill set when you start to get into the economics component of it and particularly the financial markets component of it some people switch off and i mean some people don't like markets well, that's a good way to ask why you think a market is a solution to this. What does a market offer? Yeah, well, it, it gives you price at the end of the day. And I don't know how you do anything without price. A carbon price internalizes the negative externality of pollution. The cheapest to deliver energy is burning hydrocarbons. And that's a function of, of science and economics. But we're not pricing the the combustion of hydrocarbon properly because 
there's not a cost to pollute. So that's what we sort of call carbonomics. And carbonomics is internalizing externalities. So you can change the economics for a more sustainable outcome. And then I think the other th important point around financial markets is and, and, and liquid financial markets. So I'm an accountant by, by training and there's a, a fair value hierarchy and quoted public markets sit at the top because that's effectively the most precise measure of what the market thinks value is. You know, people are buying and selling at those prices and companies are using those markets to effectively hedge their exposure to all sorts of price risks, whether it's energy, interest rates, and carbon. And, in, and if you're a company that can reduce your exposure to volatile pricing, then if you have a smoother earnings profile, you can raise more forms of capital and cheaper forms of capital. So it, it provides leverage. And also, if you're investing, how do you invest? You need to know the price of something. You need to do a net present value, a discounted cash flow, what's included in those assumptions for prices. Well, if you've got a market to sell into, you don't need to take as big a discount in terms of your, your modeling than you would do if there's no price. So, you know, if you're trying to say, hey, I've got this project, I want you to invest in, and they go, okay, what's your revenue line? Well, I don't know, <laughs> right? <laughs> it, it's hard to get investors if you don't know the price of something so it's easier to raise capital and assume risk if you know what the price of something is yeah yeah i think that's a really really useful set of key key points so to summarize so going back right to the uh, principle of how we're managing our atmosphere we are continuing to pollute at something like we're going to hit 40 gigatons per year um, we need to be halving that to, to reach the paris targets and that has to be the avoided emissions and removals you said right at the beginning that there have been carbon markets around for quite a long time now we've got ecosystem marketplace reports going back you know way, way back when to even when i started my phd oh that's a long time <laughs> ago and so this stuff you know this stuff isn't you the knowledge that uh, deforestation and forest degradation because this is the nature-based solutions podcast that that yeah. component of it um the impact of um uh, forests on the global climate and their loss that's well known as well so so why are we in this place that we are today that deforestation is continuing at one percent a year we have a price signal and yet in the voluntary carbon market, we're only getting around a billion dollars of transactions in nature-based credits. Very, very curious to hear your, your thoughts on that. Why isn't the market scaled? Are not directly priced at all. And actually 95% of emissions are not priced at a level that would incentivize abatement. So effectively, most companies don't treat their carbon as a liability. They're not on risk. And the 25% are due are are made to by governments, either through a tax or through a, a cap and trade. So the question is, how do you get organizations who pollute to effectively voluntarily treat their emissions as liability? That That's the challenge. And you can't have a market without demand. You need buyers. And I think people are investing in, so don't get me wrong, that, that there are people who are investing in, in carbon projects. But there's not enough demand to create a carbon price signal that would solve for uh, many of the issues that we have. Effectively, 
companies need to go on risk for their, their emission liability. And I'd add one more thing is, you know, we're talking about the investment side of, of how carbon pricing is good for investment. But it's also, I'd argue that it's the only way to get a, a real-time feedback loop about how to how to manage climate risk. And if you think about the atmosphere as the ultimate scarce resource, the price signal of carbon tells you how good or bad we are in preserving it. And what we're left with today is we're kind of like, our feedback loop is sort of ex post physical climate events. So we wait for a flood or a fire to go, oh, we're not too good at this. And then that costs us something. It's just after the event. And so I see if, you, if we're not using carbon pricing, we're basically got this massive off balance sheet risk getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And we don't measure it in, until, until after the fact. So that's the other thing that carbon pricing gives you it gives you a real-time feedback loop of where we are in the preservation of of the atmosphere wow it's a good way to think of it 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 is um the key question which i think we're all interested in is how to get this to be scaled up and it means that then these companies need to be considering this as as a risk to really distill it down we've got very very little time and having some very very clear action which, you know, what's going to stimulate demand? And then we've got the COP in, uh, what, it's like in a month's time. Mm-hmm. What what would be on your wish list, actually? If you could have a placard at the COP, <laughs> and imagine you, you kind of have, but what, what is going to be on that placard for policymakers, points one, two, and three, that you must do? Yeah, I mean, that, that's a, a really good question. There's, there's different ways of doing it. So if the government isn't going to do it, who is going to provide the incentive or the disincentive for companies to go on risk? And we can't expect people to go on risk for 100% of their emissions on day one. That's not how carbon markets have evolved. Even in cap and trade programs, there was free allocation. You sort of, you feed in the risk. So where I end up is, and I'm, I'm having these discussions now, you know, who controls the flow of the money? Uh, so you end up with asset owners, lenders, and also I, I started to think about philanthropy, you know, looking less for a return. Can they provide the initial sort of liquidity investment required to create a, a sort of a transparent public marketplace for carbon? So, you know, ICE has has an auction service and that's that's what we're we're trying to do is we're trying to create a public market for carbon credits in the same way that you have a public market for equities and, and bonds. And so it needs to get to that sort of scale where you've got like a primary issuance of, of tens or hundreds of billions of dollars. And as you said, it's like a billion. So we're, we're miles away, but what's better public or private? I think if transparency is your goal, then a public market is important. I, I sometimes think that going back to the feedback loop, you know, is it going to take a series of physical events that create financial instability for a government or central bankers to solve for it? So I've had an idea recently, you know, central bankers would say that you need to have a climate risk provision in every company and you need to Basically, whatever your liability is, your emissions, you've got to say uh, in the beginning have to provide at $25 a ton or 
through the purchase of a market instrument like a carbon credit. So that would go, okay, people would go either pay the $25 or if there are abatement opportunities out there for six, 10, 12, that might stimulate demand. But anything that would stimulate demand, it's hard for companies to voluntarily treat their liabilities when they've been using something for free since the dawn of civilization. You know, it does put you at a competitive disadvantage. So you've got prisoners dilemma, can you form climate clubs? You know, there was a, a, a useful publication last week or the week before by the, the Competition and Market Authority in the UK, which was trying to give companies guidance on how to collaborate without falling foul of antitrust. I mean, that's a real risk, but it was around sustainability. So I think it's trying to promote that you can act together from a sustainability perspective to promote good outcomes. And then, so that's all demand side. Um, I firmly believe it's a demand problem. Others talk about the supply uh, and whether you can believe the supply. And I would love to talk to you about MRV because you're doing stuff that hopefully gets people comfortable that they can invest in this space. That's the the power of the technology we've developed. And that, you know, that's, that's our our contribution to this market but it's only one part part of the puzzle an independent third-party data provider that people trust backed by science that's great but exactly as you say it has to be matched by the demand side as as well and it, there are projections of future risk and the cost to the global economy i just came back from the future investment initiative in in riyadh which had the great and good on stage in the initial plenary session and ray dalio pulled out the number that climate change is projected to cost the global economy between five and ten trillion dollars per year wow. but then we're talking about potential solutions here which are costing of the order of you know if we scaled up the carbon market particularly for nature-based solutions we're, we're talking of the order of like maybe up to a hundred billion dollars a year and you put that relative to the cost of the impact mm. of climate change in as order of magnitudes larger five to ten trillion dollars a year we're still not making those connections and i find that i find that surprising so i think what you're saying is we need that regulatory pressure and perhaps climate clubs to join the dots that you know if we if we don't make the investments now we're going to incur an enormous cost in the actually in a not too distant future yeah I, I, it's there it's going to cost us you know there's a narrative out there of com you don't compensate first you compensate as a last resort you abate first you decarbonize first but if the math doesn't work how are you ever going to decarbonize if it's going to cost you more to decarbonize then i don't think that's how you know companies are economic agents at the end of the day so you've got to make the math work so if you're going to use the status quo economic model and not price externalities then i think we're making it a lot harder than it needs to be you start to internalize externalities i'm very confident that the market would help solve for it now that's not saying that the market is everything you, sh you still need good good policy when 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 ice held um its climate and capital conference at the new york stock exchange which is our which we own um i mean not many people necessarily know the name ICE, but everyone knows the New York Stock Exchange and they're somewhat surprised when we tell them that we that we own it. Uh, but Jeff Ubin was doing a fireside, fireside chat. Uh, they go, oh, you're listed on the New York Stock Exchange. You go, no, no, we, uh, we bought it. Um, <laughs> well, actually, that, that would be good because we didn't, we, we had a, a very, very good comprehensive um, introduction, but we never actually did that, that leveler. 
could you just give us the you know the elevator pitch for ice and yeah. your role in in this market yeah so uh, if net zero is 75 percent an energy transition and and 25 percent investment in carbon sinks what do you need to basically make that happen you need to know the price of energy and you need to know the price of carbon and that's one of the things that ICE does. In fact, that's the origins of ICE. So Jeff Sprecher founded ICE uh, over 20 years ago. He had an, an analog to digital play. He wanted to bring price transparency to, to energy. Uh, so he wanted to create a public energy market. And soon after that, he bought the Chicago Climate Exchange, which paired up the energy and the carbon. He acquired the marketplace that allows us to internalize externalities. And this was way before net zero was a was a thing. And so ICE is a fintech company, really. I know we're in financial markets, but, but we're a financial technology company and we have this massive network and we have marketplaces which give price signals and people manage risk with. And then we have a huge data business that helps people use different types of data to come up with where they think value is of a particular investment. And then in the market, the beautiful thing of a market is you can express your view of value in the market. So if you think something's cheap, you can buy it. If it's expensive, you can sell it. So that's the the power of price and the power of the market. And, and Jeff has really had this analog to digital play for 20 years now. He's currently making investments in the mortgage technology sector. It's the same principle. It's, it's going from analog to digital. The interesting thing about mortgages, though, is that you manufacture them. When the then president of ICE Mortgage Technology was trying to explain to the, his new colleagues what, what they did, he sort of went, well, think about a, a motor vehicle. You assemble one. You don't make all the parts yourself, so you manufacture it, and the car comes out at the end. And when he did that, I went, that's a carbon credit. It's very much the same. You don't do everything yourself. You assemble them and the, the credit is issued at the end. So think of this sort of digital assembly line where different parts of the ecosystem are connecting to it and then you produce the credit at the end. And so things like digital MRV, you could see that being, being part in, of the, the, process, in yeah. the system as well. Yeah, 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 definitely. But I know that you're very, very active and um, you're, you're supporting a whole series of other events, which is, aside from telling policymakers what you think should happen, you're actually taking action yourself, for instance, engaging with uh, Make UK running, running events. Could you tell us a bit more about what you're doing yourselves as an organisation to try and uh, drive this market? Sure, I'll do that. The, the event that we're running later this month is entitled Compensate and Abate. The only way to reduce your emission liability is to abate. But compensation is key to incentivize you. You know, if, you, if you're incurring the cost, if, if you're spending $30 to pollute and I'm not spending anything and, and Kim comes up and says, hey, guys, I've got a $20 per ton abatement opportunity, you're saving 10 bucks and it's costing me $20. So that's just making the mass work. So we want to try and do this translation rule of saying why making the mass work produces good results. And so the, the, the first part of the event will be 
people talking about research that they've done that shows that compensation means that you decarbonize faster. And, and we'll also have someone there from the electricity generation sector in the UK, which is the poster child for carbonomics, because an energy generator who combusts hydrocarbon has to pay for every ton they emit. And also on the positive externality side, if you generate clean electricity, you get something called an energy attribute certificate, which means you get extra piece of revenue. So the person with the gas powered station only gets the value of the electricity. The person with the wind farm gets the electricity plus the value of the EAC. So you're making the thing that's that's less sustainable, less profitable, and you're making the thing that's more sustainable, more profitable. So the allocation of capital should change. And, and so if it works in electricity generation, why can't we repeat that in other parts of, of the economy? And I think there's an awful lot of guidance out there, which is very much just focused on abatement. And I don't think that's practical. You know, the greenhouse gas mitigation hierarchy, well, first of all, it's the word hierarchy and offsetting and compensating is at the bottom. So it's like the least important. And then if you see it from a picture point of view, you have this inverted pyramid, which sort of rams home the concept that it's at the bottom and it's small. But to your point, if we've got 40 gigatons of CO2 each year, it's not small. So that that messaging is curtailing demand. And then when you throw in the narratives being lost in the press as well, with the likes of Guardian articles, people don't believe that a carbon credit equals a ton of something, unlike a renewable energy certificate, everyone believes that if you get one rec, it equals a megawatt hour. They don't know how it works. They don't know how the MRV works, but they believe it. So we need to get people to believe one credit equals a ton. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I find that um, enormously frustrating, as you know, um, at Space Intelligence, particularly my, my co-founder, Ed, who's a um, globally renowned scientist, has been looking at some of these papers which have made these criticisms particularly at the abatement opportunities which come from investments in nature-based solutions and I think it's immensely frustrating to see this repeated anti-nature narrative coming out in the press and you mentioned um, positive externalities there's a massive opportunity which we have to take with the investment in nature-based solutions but that's from a carbon perspective solely Let's talk about positive externalities from the investment in nature-based solutions. You also address in parallel the biodiversity crisis, and you can also support the 1.3 to 1.6 billion of the world's poorest people who are forest dependent. And so we, yeah. we, we have to be doing this. And it, I find it very, very frustrating that whilst there have been projects in the past which, which haven't met up to their, their expectations, the conclusion of these anti-nature people is, well, then let's kill the carbon market. No, the, surely the answer is that you take the lessons of a very of a nascent market. It's been around you know, one and a half decades or so, 18 years. And then you bundle those lessons into the market of the future. And you say, well, this is a relatively cheap action that we can take to mitigate climate change action now, which also provides these positive externalities. So I think... Sure. We've got to tackle this anti-nature narrative head on. Yeah, well, I think you make some great point. I mean, I mean, a lot of the narrative around just decarbonizing is very much uh, a developed country mindset because particularly in Africa, 
they don't have to a lot of, they don't have energy right they don't have electricity so it's not about decarbonization for them and also there's this notion of and i use the energy transition it's not in the singular it's energy transitions is plural because everyone is at a different point in terms of their their consumption of energy and helping them to to grow their economies and this is why carbon credit is such a great instrument because it's it's supposed to if it's deployed appropriately you basically transfer wealth from those developed countries that have consumed the vast majority of the carbon budget right it's a cumulative consumption that we're talking about and then that flows to developing countries to allow them to both consume energy and and decarbonize at the same time and i think with the narrative we don't hear from the people who are benefiting from the receipt of these funds and that's all being lost in the argument and i think that's a that's a terrible outcome. So I think we've both got the opportunity through our respective uh, podcasts to ensure that people who are benefiting actually get a get a voice. That's a that's a good a good point. Yeah, I was on a panel in the um, in Riyadh on the S and P Global South Carbon Markets uh, Conference with a uh, fantastic woman from the Nigeria Sovereign Investment Authority, Mariam Shehu Mohammed. And she made the the point that for Nigeria and from the Nigerian perspective, this is now becoming a major export opportunity for them, which precisely, as you say, offers significant development opportunities for people in in rural areas. So it's not just about us. It's not just about people in uh, rich economies. These are opportunities now emerging for people in the global south, as they see it, to be able to export. Yeah. Uh, address this problem but also consequently to receive these benefit from these positive externalities so this is I mean, it's good but we should do that we should we, we should, should talk give to them yeah, yeah we should we <laughs> should give make sure that where we have capacity we should give people a voice absolutely yeah so, Gordon, we could chat to you all day about this, but I'm conscious that you're an extremely busy man. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, if we could sum up, we've obviously got this event. What are the three things on Gordon's placard? He's had some time. Oh, yeah, that's right. You've had some time. You need <laughs> to, got, we're going to hold you to this. You've got to wave that placard oh, at, at the cop. Oh, I don't need I don't need three things. I mean, uh, Michael Greenstone, the economist, sums it up better than I do. I mean, the atmosphere is free. It doesn't take a degree in advanced economics to figure out that things you get for free you use an awful lot of and if you don't use price his other quote was you're kind of in the land of fairies unicorns and pots of gold at the end of the rainbow it's not it's not real you need price to make decisions and we have to move from economics to carbonomics to solve for this or if we want to solve for it efficiently we have to move from economics to carbonomics we'll get there quicker if we adopt that that process and give it a try. I mean, for, for companies, rather than sitting on the sidelines and believing a bad headline, I can't remember who has the quote, but it comes from James Clear, uh, who wrote Atomic Habits. He, he writes an email every Thursday, and he was talking about the framing of trial and error. And he said, why do we call it trial and error? It should be like trial and triumph. So go give, go give it a go. I mean, find out for yourself whether a ton is a ton. I'm, I'm again, I'm optimistic around the innovation that that's coming to the market with companies like yourselves and the and the ratings agencies and so forth. There are there's a whole ecosystem being built to let people get more comfortable with investing. So so use them, right? Give it a go. Buy ten thousand tons. Buy a hundred thousand tons. But buy something and and figure it out yourself rather than doing nothing because if we do nothing 
nothing will happen. If we don't address if we don't don't address the market failure, then we're making it very hard for ourselves. Yeah, yeah, I, I totally agree. And that is one of the great frustrations, isn't it? The companies which have come under criticism, particularly those who have been, you know, buying uh, carbon credits from nature based solutions, they've been ones who have really been targeted. And yet, there's this long tail of people who are doing absolutely nada. Well, they're scared of being accused of greenwashing. But I, I, I thought I invented the word greenwishing. It turns out someone came up with it. Uh, about 20 years ago but it's 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 not been used since so I, i've re i've reinvented it for me if you don't address the market failure then you're kind of green wishing your way to net zero i mean setting targets and everything is cool but you got to make the math work. I mean, I set a target to lose weight every year. (laughs) It's like, it's it's survivor bias, right? You go, oh, people who are successful set targets, but how many unsuccessful people set targets? So targets isn't the be all and and end all. Um, Yeah. So green wishing is worse than green washing, I think, for the atmosphere. Green wishing and carbonomics. I love it. I love go. when words are invented and used properly. Thank Coined you, Gordon. And, um, they, go, they go on the placard. Well, um, I, I was uh, going to say thank you very much uh, for all of your time. I, yes. That was brilliant. Really interesting. Fantastic. And I want to wish you the best of luck with that weight loss. I'll check in with you. And we'll, <laughs> we'll see how... Murray loves a competition, so... <laughs> yeah. There you go. That's what you need. You need to compete, right? But, <laughs> yeah, well, I'll, I'll put a spreadsheet we'll together. Put, yeah. Thank you. Just what we need, another spreadsheet. Well, I absolutely love that conversation. I mean, Gordon, I think I think Ed has a competitor for the Ed Talk. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I think Gordon needs his own TED Talk. Well, Gordon has his own podcast show, so I imagine you'll put that. I'll put the uh, link put, in. Put that link in, and you, you can see why. Very, very eloquent. Has the numbers in his fingertips, but is also in a position to actually make things happen. Yes, and he's doing that with with Nigel, and so I really appreciate what they're doing. They know what needs to be done and they're key actors in in this market. So great pleasure to have Gordon on the show. Really enjoyed it. And I hope you did too. I think I you, did. Yeah, My education continues. Terrified. Yeah. <laughs> so hopefully not too terrified and it feels like you you know, we're we're not doing the right things. We no, are we, doing the right things. It, we just I mean, need to upscale. As if I needed any more persuasion that Nature Based Solutions was such a great solution. Hmm. Um, this has really been amazing and works well as a p- sort of part two to the conversation we had with Chris Stevenson as well. Yeah. Two really interesting episodes to understand the mechanisms of fighting climate change. Where do we go Should from we here? There? There's a, I mean, yeah, that's, that's quite a, a high We actually point. have an excellent interview planned for next week for you and your friend Rob Otterworth. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Good Rob. Okay, so we're dialing in from Australia. We are. We're going to Australia next week. We continue our world tour. Around the world tour, but virtually. Virtually, yes. No, no emissions Because we're trying not to create one. emissions. Yes, there we go. exactly. Avoiding those emissions. Well, fantastic. let's leave it there. Yep. And we shall say, as ever, thanks for listening. Subscribe now to the Nature Based Solutions podcast on all major podcast players out every Wednesday for a 10 part series finishing just before COP28. And if you do enjoy our chat, then check out some of the other podcasts that we've recorded Edinburgh Space Data Capital, Scotland's Secret Space Race, Great British Liftoff, and Inspired by Space. 